because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. Today, we're pleased to have Ryan Daly joining us. Thanks so much for being on, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So, Ryan, could you give us a little bit about your background in terms of kind of how you got interested in doing research and that kind of thing, and that as well as tell us about this Evident Central website that you work on? Yeah, so um, I grew up in Salmon, Idaho, and uh, to a wonderful, faithful Latter-day Saint family. Um, I served a mission in Zimbabwe in 2005 and 2006, and when I got home, I went to BYU-Idaho, and I got married and started a family, and um, I graduated with a degree in English education and a history in, uh, or a minor in history ed. And um, I wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do after school. And uh, so I, I moved with my family back to Salmon and we lived with my parents for a little while. And um, one day I just happened to pull off uh, a book from my dad's personal library off the bookshelf. And it happened to be written by Hugh Nibley. And this was probably in the spring of 2012. And uh, so I read Hugh Nibley's book. It was on uh, Mormonism and early Christianity. And I was just amazed. I'd never heard anyone write like that. I'd never heard those types of um, arguments or insights. Um, and just the, the knowledge that he had about ancient history and literature and languages. And um, so that was really my first introduction to sort of Latter-day Saint scholarship and um, apologetics and, and those types of things. And um, so that really kind of sparked a fire in me to try to learn a lot more about my own faith. And it was just something I really kind of needed at that time in my personal life. Um, I wasn't going through a faith crisis or anything, but it was just really important to me um, at that period of my life, and it helped me out a lot. And so I started looking online for more research and um, reading more um, of, of Nibley's material and um, scholarship from other Latter-day Saint scholars. And um, I was introduced to organizations like FAIR and FARMS and the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. And so I kind of just independently dove into this world of Latter-day Saint scholarship and research. And um, throughout that process, um, FAIR had actually started an online forum for people that were struggling with their faith and testimonies. And they would let others kind of, um, you know, help give feedback and responses to people that were struggling. And so I, I joined that forum and it didn't, uh, it was discontinued um, after a while, but that's where I met Neil Rapoli. 
And um, he was one of the first researchers hired at Book of Mormon Central back in 2015, I believe. And um, so I just happened to know him. And one day I was um, just felt like, hey, I should, I should ask Neil about this Book of Mormon Central stuff and if there's anything I can do. And so kind of the rest is history. But I, I think the important thing is I, I don't have any specialized degree. I'm not a trained linguist or historian. Um, I'm just kind of a guy who wants to help out and, <laughs> and is interested in, in learning more. And so I, I think if anything, um, I, I think that's just say that it doesn't really matter who you are, but there's something that you can contribute to Latter-day Saint scholarship and research. Um, so I've been working for Book of Mormon Central. I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, you're Sorry. fine. Um, so, so you got involved, was it like, at that point that um, you kind of got involved with Book of Mormon Central then, like shortly after Niels first spoke to you? Yeah, yeah. So um, it was probably like early 2016. I just kind of sent him a, a message and said, hey, is there anything I can do to help out? Um, eventually, I kind of had an internship and then they hired me in that summer. So I've been working there for five years. Um, doing research, helping out with creating scripts for videos and lots of editing on different projects. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, that's, that's kind of how I, how it all got started. That's awesome. So with that, I guess, what is your role per se with Evidence is Central and how, how did that organization, I guess, kind of, I'm assuming that came out of Book of Mormon Central, but how did that first get formed? Yeah, so when I was doing a lot of my independent research, I, um, I felt like it would be really good if there was a way to consolidate a lot of the evidence supporting the Book of Mormon and other restoration texts. So I started creating documents and compiling research and those types of things. And um, at some point, after I was hired by Book of Mormon Central, probably in 2017 sometime, I kind of uh, pitched this idea to our executives and they really liked it. And um, eventually they, they found a donor. And the, so the Karis Legacy Foundation is affiliated with Evidence Central. And they've really helped provide the funding for the, the programming and, and a lot of the research and basically um, their generous support has, has made it possible. But Evidence Central is part of Book of Mormon Central's sort of uh, ecosystem. So there's Book of Mormon Central, there's Doctrine and Covenants Central, there's Pearl of Great Price Central, and now we have Evidence Central as well. Um, yeah, so hopefully that answers your question. <laughs> how, how recent did Evidence Central come into being? So the, the website launched in September of 2020. So okay. it's about, it's just about a year old then. And, um, and we were, I was doing research on it quite a ways before that to kind of get ready for launch and okay. doing a lot of the design work for the website and stuff. But um, yeah, so it's, it's a year old and yeah. <laughs> cool. So I, I'd love to kind of dive into some of the things that you've been able to learn with Evidence Central. So maybe we can start with what are maybe like three 
at least we, you, can, you can mention more if you want to, but just three like of maybe the most compelling evidences of the gospel in your opinion. So maybe I'll kind of back up just a little bit and explain a little bit more about Evidence Central and how it works. Um, so it's a website, it's a YouTube channel, it's a Facebook page, and the website has different interfaces which allow you to navigate evidences in different ways. And the one that we launched with is a category interface. And basically what that means is there's three layers to it. There's sort of main categories of evidence, uh, subcategories, and then individual evidences. Um, and so what, what that does is it allows people to kind of see how different categories of evidence relate to one another. Um, and it kind of also gives people a comprehensive view of what's there. Maybe they've read something somewhere and they're like, oh, well, that's kind of cool. I didn't know that about the Book of Mormon or about some other, you know, the Book of Abraham or whatever. But for a lot of people, those one or two or kind of handful of things like that amounts to everything they know about evidence supporting, you know, the Book of Mormon or the Restoration. And so it kind of gives people this overview of all sorts of categories, Book of Mormon complexity, overview of linguistics and archaeology and literary studies and how certain aspects of the text um, are corroborated by science, you know, botany and ecology and even uh, social sciences sometimes. And um, so anyways, the reason I mention that is because when I look at, you know, what types of evidence is most compelling, um, especially after I've started this project, it's usually not one thing. It's not one inscription or one, you know, literary feature. Um, I, I kind of see evidence in different categories or different lines of, of evidence where lots of smaller pieces of information work together um, to create a more compelling um, holistic argument. Uh, so hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I think this kind of thing can be very, very helpful because I think it, it levels the playing field per se, where I think we can exercise faith more effectively. Cause I think there's, there's plenty of, there's plenty of complexity out there. There's reasons for people to have doubts, but I think some of these evidences can kind of give people reason to doubt their doubts and kind of level the playing field where they can exercise faith at a more level playing field. Yeah, ab absolutely. And a big part of why we've done this is because it takes a lot of time for someone to go and independently find all of this stuff. I mean, it's scattered all over the place in different scholarly books and academic articles and you know, monographs, and sometimes there's paywalls behind certain things, or, you know, you'll have to go and, and buy the book if you want to find a bunch of this stuff. And so a lot of it, I mean, we, we don't, obviously, we can't provide everything, but we provide summaries of research and then the sources for people to go and at least know where it is. Um, also, Book of Mormon Central has an online archive, and I think we have more than 7,000 uh, different items on the archive now. And so that's a lot of research. And it's not all articles. There's there's books and podcasts and uh, artwork and videos and, and other things. But 
Um, so it, yeah, it definitely gives people the tools they need to access the information that will be most helpful to them. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess you, so you responded to my question kind of by saying it's like the, the, the body of evidence altogether rather than like a few of the main ones. But I guess do you have maybe maybe two or three of just like your favorite evidences that you'd be willing to share? Sure, yeah. Um, maybe I could talk about lines of evidence, some of the, the yeah. my favorite categories of evidence. And, that sounds good. Uh, so one of my favorite categories is the Book of Mormon's complexity. And this is manifested in lots of different ways. So there's hundreds of names in the Book of Mormon. There's place names and there's personal names. Um, and there are three different calendar systems in the Book of Mormon. I just wrote some evidences a little while ago that charted the sequential consistency in all of the dates in the Book of Mormon, which means that, you know, as you're going through and you're reading Mormon's abridgment and he gives the year and then maybe a chapter later, he gives another couple of dates. And then a couple of chapters later, he gives some more dates. Um, as I went through, I found all the dates are sequentially consistent. In other words, he like, doesn't randomly backtrack and say the wrong year happened after intervening events had transpired. Um, and some of those, you know, a lot of times the, the date is like the very next date. Um, so it's like the 73rd year, and then it's the 74th year, then it's the latter end of the 74th year, and then it's the, you know, some time passes and it's the 77th year. And but it just amazed me that it was all consistent. And then I started looking at um, mathematical consistencies in the chronology. So there's certain occasions in the text where uh, Mormon provides a date and he provides like an age, like Mosiah was this many years old at, at the beginning of his reign. And then it gives a date in the calendar year um, and, and how many, years he had reigned, like later on, it gives another date. And so what you can do is you can go back and because you have different ways to kind of triangulate, triangulate that data, you can see, well, does it all check out? Does the math check out for his age and for the number of years in his reign and for the calendar dates? And so I just went through all of the places I could find and every single one of them pretty much checked out mathematically, they're all mathematically consistent. Um, I don't know if anyone else had done that before. Maybe someone had, but I thought it was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so there's lots of stuff like that. The, the geography, the, there's um, locations in the text that are all geographically consistent as far as elevation, whether they're up or down in relation to another um, place in the text, uh, mentioned in the text, or um, cardinal directions, whether it's east or west or north. Um, so there's lots and lots of locations Joseph Smith would have to keep track of if he was just like making this all up on his own. There's tons of other things. Yeah. There's, there's um, fulfilled prophecies in the text where uh, uh, either Mormon or someone, Abinadi or someone gives a prophecy and then chapters later Mormon comments on the fulfillment of those prophecies. And there's dozens of those in the text that you wouldn't even think of a lot of times until you really start scrutinizing the particular language that Mormon uses. And you're like, oh, he, he, was talked, he talked about that like 
16 chapters ago or something, you know, and now it's finally fulfilled and come to pass. And um, there's things where, especially in like the header information, um, a lot of times in ancient texts they are called colophons and they kind of give an outline of what's, what's in, what's going to be in the document that you're about to read. Well, there's a lot of those in the Book of Mormon that kind of summarize content before it actually happens. Um, especially in first Nephi, he gives like more than a dozen, I think, details about stuff he's going to talk about. And then you go and read through all of his, his books and eventually you, you realize, wow, he, he mentioned everything, everything he mentioned in his introductory outline, he covered somewhere in the text. And so there's just lots of things like that. There's pervasive intertextuality between Book of Mormon prophets like um, Alma the Younger has three different accounts of his experience of his conversion experience and you go and look at all of them and you you recognize wow there's like dozens of instances of him using specific words and phrases repackaged in different combinations in those um, retellings of his conversion and uh, so multifaceted complexity in the book of mormon and that's super cool it kind of makes me think of, so a while back I had Brian Hales on to kind of go over his Book of Mormon author gap um, research that he's done. And in that episode, like he talks about how like there's no record that Joseph had any kind of notes. Um, Joseph would just, he'd with his seer stone in, the, in his hat, he kind of just look in there and he wouldn't ask like, okay, what part was I at before he just would pick up in his translating and it's incredible that like, that's how he did it. And yet he had so much consistency with, you mentioned with the prophecies, with the dates and such. That's just, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and that's really the other side of that evidence is a lot of people have written complex texts. I mean, there's authors out there that write very complex novels um, a lot of people have written lengthy novels. A lot of people have written, um, you know, impressive literature at a young age. But once you combine all of the different factors reportedly involved in the translation of the Book of Mormon, you have what Brian Hales calls uh, the Book of Mormon's curiously unique is what, what he called it. And so you look at Joseph Smith's age, you look at his education, and then you start looking at the unique circumstances and constraints involved in the translation, um, particularly how fast it, it took place, probably in 60 working days between April 7th and June 30th in 1829. So that's a pretty fast clip um, to be you know, dictating to a scribe, have the scribe read it back and then move on to the next um, sentence or I guess, line of text. Um, you have him, uh, witnesses saying that he wasn't using any notes or manuscripts um, during the, the translation process. So he wasn't, he wasn't working from an outline. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. But the, the really important one is when you look at the original manuscript, and um, at least the extant portions that we have, which is between 25 and, and 30%, depending on how you calculate it. But um, when, you, when you look at the original text, you don't see any 
indication of Joseph resequencing sentences or making any substantive changes to the text. And that um, corresponds really well with what the witnesses said, because they basically said, well, he looked into the, the translation instrument, whether it's the seer stone or the um, Nephite interpreters, and he um, read off a line of text, the scribe would read it back, they would look for spelling or transcription errors, and then they would move on. And like you said, like Emma said that he went after interruptions, he would come back and like pick right up. It wasn't like that he was poring over the text, trying to remember what he said and keep track of all of this stuff with notes and outlines. It was just like he showed up every day to work and read to a scribe and, and, and they just went forward in one continuous um, process. Now, other texts, I've never heard of another text that's really, um, maybe there's a couple out there, but it's extremely rare um, for an author to be able to produce a text that way. That's basically a final draft. Um, and I don't think there's any other text that is as complex and consistent as the Book of Mormon that's that was produced in that manner. And so that's why when you, when you combine all of those things together, that's what makes the evidence impressive to me. It's not just one thing. You have to see it all together. Are there any evidences that come to mind that like are things that without looking deeply into the issue where it would look like, okay, this is actually like a mistake or a reason to doubt, but then you look deeper and, oh, you see it's actually like very faith promoting and very complex and, and like how did Joseph know that type deal? Do you have any examples of maybe evidences like that? Yeah, I, I would say that um, a lot of examples come from archaeology. So it's kind of a big deal, right, to say that critics that attack the Book of Mormon will focus in on perceived anachronisms in the text, which are things that seem out of place for their um, time and cultural setting. And so especially things where there's an absence of evidence and you say, okay, well, back in 1829, what did people think ancient American cultures were like and what types of things in the book of, that are mentioned in the Book of Mormon were confirmed in the archeological record at that time? And very few of them were. People, um, people's experience was with the contemporary Native Americans that they had encountered on the frontiers or whatever. And so they had a very limited and frankly, culturally biased view of Native Americans, and which is uh, unfortunate. But um, they didn't see the state level, the type of state level society that, that was present in earlier times, especially in Mesoamerica, um, where there were books and writings and, you know, these massive highways and temples and um, marketplaces and all of these sort of larger things in the text where you would expect um, some sort of archaeological remains to be present. You know, bigger structures, uh, cement is another one. A lot of those things there was no or very little um, reason to believe that ancient American uh, civilizations uh, had those types of material features in their culture. 
And so like cement, for example, uh, I think it was Joseph Fielding Smith. I can't maybe it was Heber J. Grant, I believe that someone actually wrote to him and was like, hey, why is the Book of Mormon mentioned cement? How come there's no cement in, you know, evidence of cement in Native American cultures? And he didn't really have a good uh, explanation at, at that time. But it turns out that we know now that um, in, in different areas in Mesoamerica, that there was cement, they did use cement. And, um, that they actually used it, especially in the time period when the Book of Mormon talks about it in Helaman, is sort of when it was flourishing and they were building all sorts of structures and, and using uh, this cement material that they had kind of refined over time. So that's an example of something that maybe earlier on it seemed like it was this huge problem for someone's faith or testimony. And then over time it ends up being a strength for the Book of Mormon. Uh, that's not to say that every um, item in the text has been is turned up in the archaeological record, but the trend over time has been of convergence between the text and the archaeological record. And the Book of Mormon looks amazingly good right now. If if you track things over time, um, there's way more things that have turned up than probably anyone expected even 50 years ago. Yeah, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I was reading uh, one of Mike Ash's books, like his book, Faith and Reason. And he talks about how like during Joseph Smith's day, there was around a hundred anachronisms. And then now there's like 25 left. So it's interesting how it does get stronger with the passage of time. Yeah, and Matt Roper has done a lot of research on that. I work with Matt. Um, he actually helps write a lot of the articles um, on Evidence Central. I don't remember the exact numbers, but that's basically one of the projects that he did a while ago and that he's kind of updated over the years is to track all of those things. And he uses different colors. Um, like he has a chart and he uses different colors and you can see how over time, whether it's, you know, I think it's red, green, and blue, I think. And um, I don't remember the exact correspondences, but the, the point basically is that over time, you see everything trending towards confirmation. Things that were red and seemed like they, they weren't confirmed all of a sudden turned to green, which means, well, there's, there's a pretty good evidence, but it's not confirmed. And then I think blue is showing that they're confirmed. And so the color just changes uh, dramatically as you look at what um, was available in 1829 or in the 1840s compared to the 21st century. Yeah, that's just absolutely incredible. Um, are there any other things that you'd want to share specifically about Evidence Central you think would be helpful for our audience? Um, yeah, I, I think that one of the benefits of Evidence Central is that it's all positive. And there is an important need to address criticisms of the church. There's an important need to um, help people answer questions that they have. And FAIR and other organizations have done an admirable job and frankly, a, a very amazing job at answering so many questions with 
with really good answers. They, they may not have the best answers at, at, in every case. I mean, that's just the nature of research and scholarship. We don't always have the best research in our articles or whatever, but the way that they've answered um, people's questions and concerns is really important and helpful, but evidence central, um, it'll, it gives people a place where, let's say someone's struggling with their testimony and they've, they've read online about, you know, criticisms of Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon or whether it has to do with contemporary social issues that, that are bothering them or, or whatever it is, that it gives a place for a leader or a friend or a parent to say, hey, you know, maybe you should look at this and just see what you think. And they go to the website and there's no, it's not just a whack-a-mole trying to knock down one criticism after another. Cause that's what happens sometimes is you have one question or two questions and you go and start answering them. But in that process, you find that there's more questions and you realize that over the past decades, there have been thousands of people that have criticized the Book of Mormon and there's always gonna be another criticism and there's always gonna be another concern or unanswered question. And so this gives people a place where they can go to to just kind of take a break from, you know, looking at negative things about the Book of Mormon and really open their eyes to say, hey, here's the full depth and breadth of, of positive information and evidence, reasons for them to believe. And so I think it's a great resource for all sorts of people in different um, stages of their faith journey whether they're in a faith crisis or whether they have strong testimonies and they just want to fortify them or they want to find the information they may need for a friend, it's a great positive resource uh, for all of those reasons. I love that. I think sometimes we use this analogy of like putting things on the shelf. And I think in my mind, I think through like understanding like the evidences of the gospel per se, I think that makes your shelf stronger. I think it gives you a greater kind of ability to cope with complexity and, and cope with ambiguity. Um, and I think it kind of goes in like the reverse where like, I think you're learning these kind of evidences. Like if you were thinking about stepping away from the church, it's kind of like you have all these questions that you'd have to be able to respond to before you could leave in good conscience, I feel like as well. Yeah, I mean, people think that like, oh, you know, the standard narrative is, you know, I've learned all of these things and I have so many questions I can't answer and eventually my shelf breaks. And it's, it's just because there were too many unanswered questions or too many criticisms. I didn't, you know, the cognitive dissonance was just too much. And uh, for me, it, it, after I've, you know, been studying these things for years now and seeking out and continuing to find new and different evidence that I didn't know before. I don't know everything, obviously. Um, as, as I've done that, I realized that it doesn't matter which side of the faith uh, divide you're on, whether you believe in the restoration or not. There's going to be really hard, unanswerable questions either way. I mean, like we talked about the Book of Mormon complexity, you put all of those things together and you say, 
how did Joseph Smith do it? Or you look at the ancient literary features in the Book of Mormon, all the Hebrew and Egyptian word plays. And, and once you get enough of that evidence, you say, under naturalistic assumptions, how did he accomplish this? Uh, what about the witnesses? Were they, you know, just mistaken? Were they complicit in some sort of hoax? Did Joseph Smith dupe them? Were they hallucinating? There's no his good historical evidence for any of those alternative theories. And so you're left with questions about why did these peoples um, risk their lives and reputations to promote and defend the Book of Mormon throughout their lives, even in periods of estrangement from Joseph Smith in the church, and on their deathbeds testify to the world that they believed in the Book of Mormon. That's pretty hard to explain for me. I think there's a lot of penetrating questions that come up as soon as you let go of your faith and try to come up with some other explanation for the available evidence. Great points right there. Um, is there any other kind of, I guess, just advice in general that you'd have for anyone that is struggling with the church right now? Yeah, I would say that a big thing that's helped me is to kind of look at the bigger picture and to recognize that the information that we have now is always just a fraction of the total available evidence. Um, in a lot of exit narratives, when people leave the church, <laughs> sometimes after you know just a few months or a year, like say, I read something on the internet, I went and studied everything, and after going through all the evidence, I can objectively say that the church isn't true. And the problem with that, in my mind, is that you're never going to go through all of the evidence, and especially not in a year or two years or five years. Maybe after two decades or something, you can say, yeah, I've seen most everything under the sun. But um, so I, I would tell people to be patient <laughs> and um, to not stop searching, because I think that as soon as they set the bar so high for um, the church to be perfect in every way that they assumed it should be perfect or its leaders or whatever, that as soon as there's any perceived inconsistency, it's like, okay, I'm done. I found out this one major thing and it's all over. And um, I, I'm thankful that the Lord allows us to go through this process because for me, um, as I've had questions, as I've had concerns, as I've dealt with faith challenges, um, as I've really dug into different criticisms of the church and not just like the summary bullet points on, you know, the standard anti-Mormon sources, but like dove into the, the literature itself and tried to really understand it. The, yeah, there's, there's been things I haven't fully understood or whatever, but um, that process has actually strengthened my testimony as I've gone back and looked at the other side as fairly as possible to see all the available evidence on the other side and then allow the spirit to help me navigate that, you know, those competing narratives and those competing sets of evidence. So I think it's really hard to do on your own to, to just dive in and, and then within a few months say, I know enough and, and I'm gonna make my decision whether to leave or to stay or whatever. 
most of you, mostly we never know enough. And so I guess, I guess the other thing I would say is um, as important as these sort of secular evidences are um, in, in strengthening faith and in um, fortifying our convictions, they will never replace the influence of the Holy Ghost. And I think that the Lord intentionally made the spirit, spiritual evidence in our lives to be somewhat subtle. He doesn't want to um, compel us to believe through um, incontrovertible spiritual evidence, but he also doesn't want to leave us without spiritual evidence. And so I think that he tries to find that balance in our lives to give us enough, you know, sufficient spiritual evidence to believe without taking away our agency. And as long as we keep seeking for that spiritual evidence, I think we eventually um, learn to discern it better and better over time. But it takes time and we just have to keep trying. Great points there. Yeah, definitely. It takes time and takes a lot of practice to learn that. Um, the question that I want to close with is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? Um, yeah, I mean, it means everything to me. The, I spend my life, every day I wake up and I study um, the Book of Mormon and other, you know, the, the Book of Abraham and Book of Moses and... Um, Sometimes I, you know, I'm, I'm working on things that are kind of more secular. I mean, um, going through all the dates in the Book of Mormon's calendar system isn't exactly the most spiritually um, inspiring activity necessarily. I mean, it's cool, but it's, it's not like reading, you know, Alma's Discourse on Faith or, you know, on the Atonement or something. But um, even then, every once in a while, I, I go through over and over the Book of Mormon for a lot of the projects that I'm doing. And still, all the time I stop and I am just amazed at the spiritual power of the Book of Mormon, sometimes even when I'm doing mundane or secular research. And so I think that um, the gospel is sort of that power in your life that draws you close to God, that gives purpose and meaning to everything that you do and, or that I do, I guess, that, that I try to allow it to. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that it gives, it gives me sort of the broad picture about not only who I am and why I'm here, but humanity collectively, what we're what we're leading up to, which is Jesus Christ's second coming and return. And that's immensely fulfilling to be working and studying on, on a text that you know in the near-ish future, whenever Christ comes again, will all of a sudden take on new importance and meaning for billions of people in the world. And so the gospel I, I guess trying to tie in what it means to me in, in relation to this specific discussion, that it, it just helps me kind of frame my life towards, um, towards God.
and trying to consecrate um, all the things that we do towards him. And I think there's no greater joy in, that we can have in life than when we try to consecrate our lives and time and talents towards building up his kingdom and preparing for the eventual eternal realities and spiritual realities of our individual and future um, existence. Great response, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on and for all of your great insights. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. This has been the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.